So hello, this is Zane Horowitz and our crew uh, for the Oregon Poison Center Toxicology Journal Club for February 23rd, 2023. And today we're going to be revisiting the topic of psilocybin mushroom uh, exposures and whether or not it works for depression and a variety of other um, problems. To give you a little bit of background on this, um, just last few weeks, the entire country of Australia, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, approved both psilocybin and MDMA ecstasy, essentially, for use by psychiatrists to prescribe for certain mental health disorders. And obviously, Oregon was one of the leading states to do this. Um, but there's bills in three or four other states, including Washington, just to the north of us. And there's applications in Canada to approve a variety of products that are over-the-counter that contain psilocybin, including as I was surfing the internet on a day like today where it just snowed in Oregon, this sounded absolutely delicious, hot chocolate with psilocybin in it. I mean, how can you get better than that? Um, but to roll the time back about two years ago, there was an initiative on the ballot called Oregon Measure 109, and which is called the Psilocybin Mushroom Services Program Initiative. And it asked the voters to either approve or disapprove the creation of a agency authorized by the Oregon Health Authority called the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board, which over the next two years, which is now at the end of those two years, put together the rules by which a facilitator could become licensed or registered to administer psilocybin in essentially a non-medical but observed situation. Um, these facilitators don't necessarily have to have any background whatsoever in medicine or psychology, just be interested parties. And uh, this went to the voters. There was $5.3 million spent on the pro measure uh, advertising. Uh, there was zero dollars spent on the against it advertising. A variety of people came out on the ballot uh, for it. A variety of senators, representatives, people running for office all the way down to the local municipal level, a variety of unions and other interested parties. And although there was no formal opposition to it, there were statements issued by the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, the Oregon Medical Association, the Oregon Psychiatric Physicians Association, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Oregon Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, all recommending this not be approved. So uh, despite that, uh, the final tally was 56% for and 44% against, and it was passed, and the Oregon board was established. And after two years, they have come up with some guidelines about how uh, they proceed. I was going to ask Dan Sudeikin, one of our faculty who had just published literally today on, on this process, he had any comments on how that process went, as I know he covered some of this in his publication. Sure. So. Uh... It, it was a transparent process. Uh, it took place kind of during the deepest, darkest times of the, the pandemic. So the, the iterations that, you know, the, the board that met and provided recommendations 
met kind of just like we are right now uh, through Zoom uh, with all of the choppy communications and all of that, the, the baggage that goes along with that. But there were a lot of opportunities for public comment. Uh, and uh, I, I did note in my commentary that the, uh, the, the board did not either solicit or receive any input from uh, someone with a toxicology background, whether a, a clinical or a medical toxicologist. Um, uh, but, you know, again, it was a, a transparent process and uh, one that took place when a lot of people, I think, were busy with a lot of different things during the, the pandemic. But the rules are written into law right now, and there's a whole cohort of people who are in the process of training to become facilitators, and there's a handful of uh, um, facilities that are applying for licensure to become these uh, service centers where people will have to go to ingest and to be observed while they're, while they're having their experience. So uh, it's a really interesting uh, sequence of events that's likely to have a lot of different sorts of outcomes that we're all going to uh, see over these next few months. Yeah. yeah. Hey Dan, I can add to that. Uh, I would say it was more forceful than just not seeking medical toxicologists because I know of at least two, including myself, that applied to be on that board and was rejected. And that was really in contradiction to the, the cannabis rules commission where they actually sort of penciled out who they would ask and to make sure that they had a nice balanced um, you know, group that would have all the information, you know, so that they can make smart decisions. Sure. Um, this was, this was, a, I don't know who made that selection, but I know, uh, you know, I, I applied and was rejected from that. So the only other piece I would just throw in is that, and I do speak to this in the commentary, is that the person who was the chief proponent of making this a ballot measure that ended up getting approved by Oregon voters, um, it was written into the measure that that person would be on the, uh, the advisory board, which they were. Uh, they were the chair of the board uh, until they resigned or stepped down from the board at some point about a year and a half ago. Uh, this was after a lot of the rules, preliminary rules, uh, had been written uh, uh, into effect. Uh, and that person uh, uh, resigned uh, after having disclosed that they had some conflicts of interest and that they're developing one of these service centers uh, um, that, that's basically going to go live these next few months. So, you know, it's just... Uh, part of the process, but something that I think people should be aware of. Well, I think with that, I would want to dive into, as toxicologists, as medical people, what do we know about how psilocybin works and what is published out there about how it may or may not be effective. Um, obviously, I fear that more states will be jumping on the, the bandwagon, as essentially Australia did, but the truth is, I, there's limited scientific information out there. I wanted to start out with an article that delves into a lot of the basic pharmacology um, called the Dark Classics. Uh, There's a series of articles from a variety of alternative medicines and hallucinogens that are in the Dark Classics, uh, ACS Chemical Neuroscience Journal, um, but this one specifically to the psilocybin. So I'm going to go to Ruby to tell us about that. 
so this is a review in which psilocybin is a tryptamine alkaloid and its use has been dated back long ago for medicinal and religious purposes by um, the Mexican Indians. The psilocybin and psilocybin, which is its active metabolite, uh, was first identified by Albert Hoffman. And in the clinical study, he started to use it um, in the 1960s and 1970s. And that initially showed an altered state of consciousness, alterations in perception, mood, thought, time, space, and self. As it became a more of a popular hallucinogenic recreational drug, then in 1970, it was classified as a Schedule I drug. Structurally, it's very similar to other endogenous neurotransmitters, such as serotonin, melatonin, and then this NN-dimethyltryptamine, which is thought to be the endogenous psychedelic. As for its metabolism, once it's ingested, it undergoes hepatic first-pass metabolism and gets rapidly dephosphorylated into psilocin uh, through this unknown enzyme. Psilocin then undergoes phase one and phase two metabolism, and its metabolites are renally excreted with a half-life approximately three hours. In most developed countries, it's illegal. Um, psilocybin and mushrooms are illegal. The one exception is the Netherlands, in which the loopholes, they have it in truffles. And specifically for psilocin, which is the active metabolite, it acts upon many serotonin receptors, also histamine 1, alpha 2, and alpha 2B, 2A, 2B, and dopamine receptors as well. It also inhibits the CERT transporter, so therefore a higher concentration of serotonin accumulates in the synaptic cleft. And its um, psychoactive properties are thought to be due to 5-HT2A, Receptor. Also, there was an argument debate that maybe a component of this is also the 5H2, 5-HT2C receptor, but they did some studies where patients were given an antagonist to the 5H2A receptor in patients who uh, psychedelic users and found that it had inhibited hallucinations, but the 5H2C did not. So as for the 5H2A, Besides neuronal activation, it also enhances memory and learning and also smooth muscle relaxation, anti-inflammatory effects as well, produces oxytocin, prolactin, and renin. Um, and whereas dopamine 2 is normally associated with psychiatric illness and hallucinations, it has little effect with um, psilocybin in this case. Uh, because they had given patients Haldol, and these patients like did not have an augmented uh, psychoactive effect. So it's thought more so on the dopamine receptor, which psilocin has a high binding capacity for it, uh, but it's unclear as for its mechanisms. Then there's also psilocetin, uh, saying that right? Mm -hmm. which uh, is a chemically modified precursor to psilocin, and it, it's found to have a faster onset and, and without the causing anxiety or nausea that's commonly associated with mushroom ingestion. As for its therapeutic window, it's pretty wide. Like in animal studies for behavioral changes, they use like less than 10 mg per keg, which some of it was even less than 1 mg per keg, but the LD50 in rats was closer to 300 mg per keg. So a lot of this was also limited to the nausea and vomiting that's associated with the mushrooms as well. 
for clinical effects, it's pretty dose dependent, but patients will get like a physiologic, visual, auditory, cognitive, transpersonal, and multisensory effects such as synesthesia, which is uh, like color association with numbers or letters that you can see. And in higher doses, it seems to be more stimulating with really a lot of visual effects, whereas low doses is more sedating and some enhanced visual changes. Patients also describe this physical euphoria, this body high, where they get a light, pleasurable sensation uh, covering their body and like glowing weightlessness. So basically, it's a warm hug <laughs> that you get. But, um, Perfect full duration for the hot chocolate, right? <laughs> through hot chocolate. Uh, the full duration is seven, four to seven hours, but it can last up to 24 hours for the after effects. And for more severe effects, patients can get this hallucinogenic, uh, hallucinogen, persisting perception disorder, seizures, and this hypothetical risk of um, cardiac vapulopathy, really from the H HT2B receptor. Then there are drug-to-drug -drug interactions. The most dangerous is tramadol, which both medications synergetically um, is more seizure-prone. And then cannabis taken with uh, psilocybin can either cause like this paradoxical reaction where they get intense anxiety instead of relaxation. Then there's amphetamines, which is interestingly patients are at risk of developing this thought loop, which is this repetitive, uh, repetitive set of like thoughts or ideas. And then briefly it goes over like mushroom foraging, like people who forage mushrooms, uh, the deaths have occurred from people who are looking for like Amanita muscaria, and then instead get like phylloides or misidentification that is truly uh, Amanita phylloides instead. The most interesting part of this review, uh, in my opinion, was studies on terminal cancer fascinating. So the studies looked at like depression and anxiety in patients who had either like late stage cancer. And there were two studies that looked at this specifically, and they found that there was a reduction in anxiety and depression, and overall an improvement in the quality of life, even after a single dose. Another study of cancer patients showed that there was a large decrease in clinical and subjective measure of uh, depression and anxiety. Uh, and then on a, a six-month follow-up, they had an 80% uh, significant decrease as well. Uh, these patients had better improvement in attitudes towards death and experience. Sorry, excuse me. Hmm. Likewise for tobacco, these patients had an improvement as well um, regarding like their addiction with tobacco and also had an improvement after 36 weeks as well. So drawbacks, and one study with 44 patients, they found that dysphoria was the most common reason for patients to be admitted to the hospital. They had um, changes in behavior, aggression, and violence. And for patients who are like using it for non-research purposes, these patients were at risk of physical harm and also um, experiencing basically a bad trip in which they were having psychological problems or negative effects from it. So overall, that's the review. Yeah. So you're right. So there's a downside. You know, obviously, I'm not sure how well they are going to select 
with patients who come for these therapies or whether they just show up and say, I'd like this therapy and they do the therapy. I'm not sure how the rules are going to pan out. But in you know, a huge survey of like 2,000 users, a big percentage of them had relatively negative experiences from this, um, including fear, anxiety, dysphoria, paranoia, things like that. So it's not entirely safe, but the risk of acute death seems to be pretty low uh, with it. I um, just want to do one more paper on the pharmacokinetics of it, which uh, comes from a drug metabolism review. So I'm going to do that before we dive into the studies looking at how well it stands up for its proposed uses here. So Joe, tell us about its metabolism and kinetics. Let me share my screen with you guys. So here is a figure two from this article. I just want to keep this up on the screen while I go over everything. So my paper was called The Metabolism of uh, Psilocybin and Psilocin, Clinical and Forensics Toxicology Relevance. And the clinical question they're asking was, what is the metabolism of psilocin and psilocin, and what are the clinical and forensic toxicology toxicologic implications of this information. So this was a study uh, of review uh, where they reviewed available literature on the metabolism of psilocin and psilocin. Uh, basically, the primary outcome was to review available literature on the metabolism of psilocin and psilocin and to discuss the clinical and forensic toxicological relevance of this information. So. They talk about, the first part of this paper talks about absorption, distribution, and excretion. They mention that psilocin is typically administered orally. Uh, it can be in the form of a drink or a chocolate, chocolate bar due to that it's a, uh, unpleasant taste. They also mention that it can be smoked. Uh, the article notes that psilocin, or uh, psilocybin, sorry, is more soluble in water than psilocin, which has a highly polar phosphate group, and as a result, uh, psilocin is more easily absorbed from like a rat jejunum and colon, uh, indicating a greater central nervous system bioavailability. The pharmacokinetic studies in animals have shown that uh, only 50% of carbon-14 labeled psilocybin is absorbed following oral administration and is almost uniformly distributed throughout the body, including the brain, where it exerts its psychedelic properties. Psilocybin is rapidly hydrolyzed in the intestines to psilocin in vivo studies in rats show, indicating that psilocybin is absorbed mostly or even all as psilocin. In humans, psilocin is detectable in significant amounts in the plasma within 20 to 40, 40 minutes after oral administration, and the maximum concentrations are reached approximately 80 to 100 minutes. The effect of psilocybin in psilocin is completely, completely disappears within about four to six hours. The article also notes that psilocybin and psilocin have an elimination half-life in plasma of about 160 to 50 and 50 minutes, respectively. In vivo studies show that rats have shown that psilocin is excreted in the urine about 65%, and bile and feces tend are 15 to 20% within eight hours after oral administration, with about 10 to 20% remaining in the organism for a longer amount of time. The metabolism of psilocin has been detected in the urine seven days after oral administration. Approximately 25% of the whole dose was shown to be excreted unaltered, and a controlled study in humans showed that within 24 hours, 3.4 plus minus 
0.9% of the applied dose of psilocybin was excreted in the urine as free psilocin. Later pharmacokinetic and forensic studies revealed that psilocin is mostly approximately 80% eliminated as psilocin o -mucuronide, and the enzymatic hydrolysis of this conjugate during analysis extends, uh, extends the time of detectability for psilocin in the urine samples. So in regards to the metabolism, I think Ruby hit on some of this too. Psilocin is a prodrug, which means that it's converted to its active form, psilocin, in the body. After oral administration, psilocybin is rapidly dephosphorylated under an acidic environment in the stomach or by alkaline phosphatase in the intestines, kidney, and possibly the blood to generate psilocin, which is easily processed the blood-brain barrier. Psilocin is responsible uh, is a responsible compound for the psychoactive effect of psilocybin. Psilocin undergoes compa uh, comparable human metabolisms to the neurotransmitters serotonin, and it is further metabolized by demethylation and oxidative deamination catalyzed by liver MAO or uh, aldehyde dehydrogenase to, uh, to yield or hydroxyindole 3 acetic acid or hydroxyindole 3 acetaldehyde and 4 hydroxy uh, tryptohole. I think I pronounced this correctly. MAO inhibitors are also consumed by psilocin abusers to intensify its hallucinogenic effect. Ethanol may also enhance the trip since its primary metabolite acetaldehyde reacts in vivo with endogenous biogenic uh, bio uh, amines producing MAOI inhibitors. Uh, tetrahydroisoquinolines, I think, <laughs> and B-carbolines. Tobacco use is associated with lower levels of MAO in the brain and, perhaps, and peripheral chip shoes, and therefore extends effects of magic mushrooms, or extending the effects of magic mushrooms exactly. Psilocin may cause competitive inhibition of MAO, and this enzyme also metabolizes serotonin. So brain levels of serotonin may be elevated and simultaneously 5-HIAA may decrease. Psilocin may also be subject to extensive glucuronidation by UDP uh, glucuronotransferase, UGT1A10 in the small intestines. And UGT1A9 is likely the main contributor to its glucuronidation once it has been absorbed in the circulation. Uh, this, the analysis of psilocin and psilocin in the body fluids is challenging since its analytes are rapidly metabolized and unstable under uh, the influence of light and air, especially when in a solution. Blood samples stored at room temperatures uh, uh, evidence a continuous decrease of about 90% of psilocin and psilobinin concentrations after 48 hours. Therefore, it's essential to collect and store the samples appropriately to avoid false negative tests. So, kind of to sum this all up, the authors found that psilocybin is rapidly metabolized in psilocin, which is the active compound responsible for the psychoactive effects of psilocybin. Psilocin is further metabolized in the liver and excreted in the urine. The authors discussed that the clinical and forensic toxicology implications of this information, including the interpretations of drug test results, detection of psilocybin in postmortem specimens, and the potential for drug interactions. I thought this was a very interesting paper, uh, especially for the implications of uh, further decriminalization and legalization of uh, uh, magic mushrooms in the future uh, in Oregon and in their estates. So, uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, no, it's good basic uh, pharmacokinetics. Um, 
I think you know one of the important things is if we we're going to do some sort of forensic testing, we need to measure not just psilocybin but the active compound that it's converted to psilocin. And it says that you know we have to handle these specimens appropriately by you know freezing them because there is some degradation that goes on if it's not frozen. But um, I'm not sure how set up like labs and coroner's offices, medical examiners will be. Let's look for this and post-mortem or criminal uh, cases, but uh, Rob, if you have a comment on this. Yeah, I was curious, Joe, given, given the info you just presented, what would you predict might be a um, interaction? You know, I always think about what if someone had renal failure, as we just had similar things like that recently, and what if someone had... Uh, you know, genetic uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, variability in their metabolism, and then so what, what would what would you predict? And then I don't know if there's actually any evidence for any of these things. I guess uh, you know, liver failure would be a big thing, but also renal failure too, if it's uh, excreted in the urine too. So any of those would probably change how it's metabolized in the body, <laughs> how long it lasts and stays, in, uh, and the effects that it has. Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think that glucuronidation is fairly well preserved until you're pretty severely incapacitated with liver failure. Does the patients with liver failure still glucuronidate their bilirubin? They still have conjugated bilirubin. So I don't know which ones, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose really severe liver failure. Um, and then I think it's all glucuronidated, right? And then urine. Excretion. So, if you have a normal liver, then would renal failure or well, it is that some of it was uh, excreted unchanged. There, I think there's like twenty oh, to twenty-five okay. percent excreted unchanged in the urine. So, if you're not able to urinate it out, I'm sure you'd have some floating around uh, yeah. a little longer periods of time. I guess the other one was the sort of uh, ALDH and monoamine oxidase. I always think about like you know what. Very few people are taking disulfiram anymore, but um, you know, you never know if you were trying to get high and stay high longer, you might take some. Uh, hint, hint for good drug taking. Uh, and then I guess the other thing is like, not too many people are taking monoamine oxidase inhibitors, but lots of people take St. John's wort, and uh, that inhibits monoamine oxidase. So would that predict a prolonged solution high? I don't know. I don't know if there's any cases, but certainly would be something to think about. I'll add in reference to something that Ruby said too. Is like one of the big pushes for this was it helps the people who are, you know, depressed because they have terminal cancer, and there there are like loads and loads of cancer chemotherapy agents that work and are metabolized through similar pathways. So I'm not sure how well trained these facilitators are to even understand that because I, mean, I myself would have to look up if someone was on some potent chemotherapy agent that has a liver metabolism pathway to see if there would be interaction with this, with this psilocybin. Yeah, these are uh, uh, really interesting uh, on-point issues. I, I actually, when I look at the, the clinical literature, some of the more interesting stuff is in terms of efficacy is, is the end-of-life uh, use of psilocybin where people probably do have some substantial 
impairment of, you know, uh, possibly pharmacokinetics or protein binding, and it doesn't really seem to be a, a, a higher incidence of, of adverse reactions. In fact, I think that that's really where the there's some very compelling, interesting data on, on its efficacy under very carefully supervised conditions. But one thing I did want to say with regards to the MAO issue is, um, and this is a, an issue that a topic that I find totally interesting, but didn't make it into the manuscript that I that I just published. But um, in the last couple of years, there have been some very interesting natural uh, product studies of um, of psilocybin uh, that have demonstrated very clearly that among the different, in addition to psilocybin and psilocin as the active ingredients. Uh, the cubensis species actually produces this group of chemicals called the beta-carbolines, which are uh, MAO inhibitors, potent MAO inhibitors, and they're actually part of the active ingredients in, in ayahuasca. Uh, and uh, so that's super interesting because in Oregon, one of the decisions that they made was that they, in contrast to the other studies we're going to talk about today, where they actually used a synthetic form of psilocybin. Here in Oregon, the rules require that the psilocybin that people are going to be taking are naturally cultivated. Uh, it comes from either whole mushrooms or homogenized mushrooms or mycelium, uh, which can contain these beta-carbolines uh, that no one is going to be requiring testing for at the state level. Uh, and the whole long and short of it is when you're looking at natural products like this, that can contain, you know, varying concentrations of these beta-carbolines, uh, a, a, a standard 10 milligram dose of psilocybin may be significantly potentiated by some of these uh, MAO inhibitors that are already inherent in that, that formulation. So I think that that's a, a, a big issue that has not been touched by anybody, to my knowledge, and uh, something to, to get out in front of as far as recognizing the potential for, uh, for, for you know, adverse effects or unexpectedly strong doses. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if the FDA treated this like another drug, all these type of studies would be asked for and need to be performed, but we voted this in without sort of oversight from any sort of medicinal agency. Now, that being said, the agency that approved this in Australia, the TGA, is similar to our FDA. So, but they probably had the exact same studies that we have to look at its efficacy, which I was going to move to next, because there are a few, and they are quoted often in every review that's ever been written on this, but there's a few well-designed studies. Let's see if we can pick those apart. I'm going to start, I think I took this slightly out of order from, I'm going to start with the New England Journal Single Dose Psilocybin, because I just wanted to look at just its treatment without comparing. I think that's Jeff's article, is that correct? Yeah, that's me. Um, just wanted to make a comment on that earlier. So by, by using the naturally occurring um, uh, psilocybin from plants, you're basically taking that standardizing out of, the standard out of standardizing. Yes. Yeah, that I think is a it's a I think that that's a big deal because the studies we're going to talk about right now, when they talk about a, a given dose of ten or fifteen or twenty five milligrams of psilocybin, uh, the, those are 
chemically synthesized, you know what you're getting. Uh, and we don't have the same capacity here in the Oregon rules to, to say that uh, in terms of what else might be in the formulation that might potentiate that. So uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. All right. Any other comments on its metabolism and drug-drug interactions? Because I wanted to start off with that. I wanted us to understand how it works and what the body does to it before we jump into some of these studies. All right. All right, Jeff, uh, take it away. Okay, I'll share my PDF of the article here. So, like you said, this is a New England Journal article. This was just published in 2022 in November, a single-dose psilocybin for treatment-resistant episode of major depression. Um, this was uh, a uh, study, first off, that was funded uh, by a company called Compass, uh, who, as we were mentioning, um, has created a proprietary uh, synthetically derived formulation of psilocybin. Uh, this was a phase two uh, clinical trial, double-blinded, uh, where patients were given doses of 25 milligrams, 10 milligrams, or one milligram of psilocybin, with a primary endpoint being a change in their uh, baseline score uh, of the uh, MADRS depression score. Um, the uh, primary endpoint covered the sites they used. It was pretty widespread. There was 22 sites in 10 different countries that they were pulling data from. Um, they, they did it Sorry, did I interrupt someone? Uh, they did use, um, or they did exclude patients who were uh, at risk for suicide and only used patients who were being outpatient, outpatiently treated for uh, their depression. So there were no inpatients in this group. Um, they did not define how uh, patients were excluded as at risk for suicide. Um, it's the structure was similar, I believe, to what is planned for the Oregon psilocybin therapy sessions in that patients met with a therapist before they began the, the dose of psilocybin. They established a relationship over a couple of visits. Um, they were given a dose of psilocybin uh, and then had some, you know, headphones placed over their ears with like a curated music playlist, an eye shade placed so that they would kind of direct their attention inward. Um, went through their session and then proceeded to fill out this MADRS depression score uh, the following day and then a few weeks out from their treatment. Um, scroll down here to the data. Um, they had a total of 216 people who uh, were randomized, who were followed through to the end uh, for analysis. Uh, 233 initially underwent randomization. They had pretty even groups, 79, 75, and 79, who received uh, the 25 milligram, 10 milligram, and 1 milligram doses of psilocybin. Um, and they didn't really lose a lot of people to follow up. Uh, 79, 75, and 79 of those groups uh, went into the analysis. Um, here is some of the demographics, but scrolling down a little bit more to kind of the meat of the data. Um, 
I'll show you this chart first. Uh, these are the change in the MADRS depression scores following their psilocybin dosage. You can see on the uh, x-axis you have uh, their baseline score uh, being at zero uh, and then day two all the way out until week 12, which was as far as the study tracked these folks. Um, and then the differing dosages represented in the, the blue, green, and gray lines. Uh, and then you can see the error bars uh, at each of these follow-up uh, dates. The psilocybin dosage of 25 milligrams brought people all the way down to a change in their score at their day two visit of 15 points. Uh, and then folks remained statistically significantly separated from those 10 milligram and one milligram dosages pretty much all the way out until the 12 week follow-up. It's a little bit muddier with the 10 milligram and one milligram dosages. They did see a decrease in their depression scores, but then there's some overlap uh, in terms of statistical significance as we pull all the way out into three weeks, six weeks, and so on. Uh, coming back up here, we can see some more of that, uh, the uh, more of the raw data. Um, the only uh, comparison in terms of between the 25 milligram dosage and the 10 or the one milligram dosage, uh, only the 20 Philip 25 milligram dosage showed uh, a p-value of less than 0 0.001, separating it from, from those two dosages. I'll pull us down to one more graph. Sorry, actually, it is right here. Um, there were some secondary endpoints um, that they looked at as well. Uh, response at three weeks, um, which they described as response being a decrease um, in 50% from their initial MADRS uh, score. And you can see that in the percentages, um, 37, 19, and 18% of patients uh, had a 50% decrease uh, in their respective dosages. But probably the most valuable piece of data that we would want to know from the study was there was sustained response out to 12 weeks. Um, and 20% of patients uh, saw that sustained response uh, out at 12 weeks in the 25 milligram group, whereas only 5% and 10% in the 1 milligram and 10 milligram groups. Um, I think this study is a bit limited just because of the proprietary nature of the compass formulation of psilocybin. Um, and it has some bias given that this is a for-profit group who's hoping to imagine go to market with their formulation at some point. And they were the primary funders of the study. And it's also unfortunate that maybe the folks who are at most at risk of being damaged or hurt by their depression, the folks who would be at risk for suicide weren't included in this study, um, as well as people who are, uh, you know, inpatient hospitalized for their depression. But overall, I think they showed some interesting data um, in terms of supporting the large dose of psilocybin as giving some benefit for folks in the long term, if we can go 12 weeks long term. Um, and I would have been curious to see them follow a little bit further to see if that 
change could have been sustained. And one of the last articles we'll review looks at a longer term outcome. But you're right that for a short term one dose, you know, there seemed to be some change in the score, which is widely accepted as a reasonable score. I do want to point out one thing in the method section that they do say, and something you brought up, was that this compass group, that the statistical analysis was contracted to a research organization, then reviewed by that sponsor before it was released for post hoc statistical analysis that was performed by the sponsor. And then not only that, the sponsor paid for professional writing assistance. So although all of the doctors and clinicians were on the author list, this was a very controlled who got in and how the statistics were managed, analyzed, and actually how the verbiage of the final product publication came out. But given a one-dose see-what-it-does trial, and I think they were trying to prove that the one-milligram dose was a controlled subphysiologic dose so they can compare it to the 25 without having a true placebo because you can never have a placebo because people know if they get psilocybin or not. Um, so there was some effect here in a small study. Zane? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the effect is pretty impressive, but I think what you just said has to be underlined mm -hmm. is it kind of all depends on how rolled out this study, right? If you told people strongly believe that psilocybin is going to make your depression better, you know, and sort of presented people with repeatedly with that information, the control group very well knew that they didn't get a large dose of psilocybin because mm -hmm. any one of us who got a milligram of psilocybin would not start having synesthesia. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's one of those things that it, it's very clear to the person if you've convinced the subject that they will have, they will feel better. We're not talking about measures of hypertension where there's a objective measure. We're talking about depression score. So this is exciting, but I think we really have to keep in mind that if you, you know, if you tell people that it's going to work and then you give a drug that does the effect that they say is going to work, and then you ask him, did it work? That has, it, it's not easy to measure that very well. I'll also point out that um, at 12 weeks, the sustained response, being the people who still had a decent MADRS score, was only 20%, and the confidence interval for that actually crossed one, so it was not statistically significant. So there was a big drop acutely in depressive symptoms, but it wasn't something that continued. Um, one might ask, uh, well, what happens when you take a regular antidepressant? Because we know there are lots and lots of them on the market of a variety of different categories, SSRIs, SNRIs, cyclic antidepressants, even MAOIs, all these different groups are out there, um, and even or beyond an, S, an NDRI as well. What if we actually had a trial where we compare this head-to-head -head with something we know is the first-line therapy? So I'm going to bring up the next article uh, that actually looks at that question. So 
Rahane, uh, tell us about the head-to-head -head trial with Estalopram, Estalopram. All right, okay. Um, so um, some background, uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, psilocybin is a phosphorylated ester form. Its metabolite is the um, uh, psilocin, um, and thought to have its uh, antidepressant effects through um, agonism of the 5-hydroxy tryptamine type 2A receptor, um, which is implicated in depression. Um, so this study here um, looked at psilocybin's antidepressant capacity in comparison to an established um, SSRI, esotelopram, um, uh, was a phase two double-blind randomized uh, trial uh, involving patients with long-standing, moderate to severe major depressive disorder. And this was over the course of six weeks, involved uh, patients uh, in, with ages ranging from uh, 18 to 80, uh, mean uh, average age was 41. Uh, there was 30 people in the psilocybin group, 29 people in the escitalopram, um, and uh, the patients were assigned to either the experimental or the control group. Um, experimental uh, received a uh, two doses of um, 25 milligrams of, of psilocybin um, three weeks apart, um, and then had a daily placebo. And the the control had um, one milligram of psilocybin given to them uh, three weeks apart um, and had uh, daily placebos in between as well. The primary outcome was assessment of the change in baseline of their 16-item um, quick inventory of depression symptomatology self-report um, at six weeks. Um, and secondary outcomes uh, were assessment of uh, response um, to treatment, which was uh, defined as a reduction of the score by 50% and uh, remission, which was defined as um, a score of equal to or less than five at six weeks. Um, uh, the the, um, the quids, uh, SR16, which is uh, the quick inventory of depression symptomatology self-report, um, uh, asked questions about sleep, insomnia, mood, uh, appetite, changes, um, weight changes, concentration, things that to sum up uh, their, their depression. Uh, their main exclusion criteria was um, immediate family history or personal history of psychosis, uh, serious history of a suicide attempt, um, positive pregnancy tests, um, contraindications to uh, SSRIs or undergoing MRI, um, and uh, previous uses of escitalopram. Um, although previous use of psilocybin uh, was allowed, um, and um, uh, also exclusion of pre-existing psychiatric conditions such as borderline personality um, that could jeopardize the report between the patients and um, their caregivers. Um, okay, uh, so the results ultimately, um, uh, the quid or the kids uh, SR16 scores were uh, the mean score was 14.5 in the psilocybin group in comparison to the score of the escitalopram group, which was 16.4. Uh, mean changes um, being uh, 8, point, 8 points uh, or negative 8 points in the psilocybin group and uh, 6 points, uh, both plus minus 1 uh, for the psilocybin group or the escitalopram group. Um, so there was a change, there was a mean change in 
minus 8 in the score for the psilocybin group and minus 6 um, in the escitalopram group. So minus 8 and minus 6. Uh, the difference between the groups uh, was um, 2 points. Um, and uh, the scores that they had ranged from 0 to 27. Um, and uh, in response to the secondary uh, changes, like response in general, there was a 70% response in the experimental group, 48 response in the control group for a difference of 22. Um, in respects to remission, there was a 50% remission response in the experimental group, 28% in the control group for a difference of 28. Um, incidences of adverse effects were similar in the two groups, 87% in the experimental 83% in the control group um, in these adverse events included things such as headaches, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, um, anxiety, dry mouth, migraines, uh, sleep disorders, diarrhea. Um, uh, the uh, confidence interval was 95% um, had a negative uh, 5 to 0.09. The, the p-value was 0.17 indicating that um, although we saw you know, a, a response, a difference between the two groups. Um, it wasn't statistically significant between the two groups. Um, so, um, uh, a further study um, uh, is required. Bigger numbers, more standardizing of uh, the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, um, should be noted, uh, five out of 29 patients um, did not complete the protocol uh, for the escitalopram group um, or stopped taking their escitalopram capsules because of adverse events. One uh, missed the, one of them missed the dose because of COVID, um, and uh, one patient from the and one patient stopped taking big stopped taking their oh one patient had their escitalopram reduced from 20 to 10 milligrams. Um, due to adverse events, um, and three out of the 30 in the psilocybin group um, did not complete their um, procedural dosing as well, two missed it because of COVID. So overall, there's, there's a response, there's a difference between the two groups, um, just if we're looking at the results, but from a statistical standpoint, um, there wasn't any statistically significant difference between the two groups. Yeah, and I think that's the maybe the take-home point is that in a short trial with a small number of people, there was no statistical difference between established therapy, escitalopram, and psilocybin therapy, even though the number drop on the depression score was two points different. Whether that two points makes a clinical difference, it's impossible, probably doesn't. They had a bunch of secondary outcomes of at least five different other scores at six weeks. None of those really were statistically significant either. I'll also mention that in order to get these 60 patients, they screened 1,000 patients, 100 of which went past the screening stage to see if they qualified. And at the end of the day, they ended up with 60, of which about three to five dropped out of each category for one reason or another. So a huge undertaking just to find a selective group for which to find no clinical statistical difference between this and this well-established therapy. Any other 
Okay. Which I guess, uh, I, I guess you know, it, it's not, it's not the worst thing because they didn't at the very least have you know a statistically relevant um, difference in the opposite direction. Right. I don't think it was a harm, so I agree with that. In a way, you could say this is a almost but not quite a non-inferiority trial. Like if you compare a new drug to an established drug, which is kind of what they're doing. <clears throat> is it as good as the, the old drug? And the answer is, statistically speaking, likely so. Um, but the thing is, there's a lot of old drugs that also have treatment failures, so, as this one did, did as well. It's not really measured here, but I consider it to be a factor that one of these is a drug that's given you know, one time over the course of weeks to months, mm -hmm. whereas one is something that has to be taken, I assume, escitalopram is daily or twice daily, right. which for convenience sake is a big difference. Right. I agree. So what about preparing this? I thought this was going to be a study which is actually a head-on two-arm study, but this actually was a systematic review between two psilocybin and another newer agent um, as well, um, but I thought it was important to kind of bring it up as what about what are the other possibilities for treating depression and how well do they work? Um, so, Catherine, tell us about S-ketamine and psilocybin. Yeah, absolutely. So, as Dr. Horowitz mentioned, this was a systematic review. It was published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences in 2022. And the aim of the study was to compare and review the potential use of psilocybin and S-ketamine in depression treatment. So this group searched PubMed and Medline databases for the terms depression and psilocybin or S-ketamine and ultimately got uh, 617 um, articles. They were able to wean that down to 12 studies by only including 10 years worth of study, uh, the most recent 10 years, and then they only included clinical trials and excluded poor study designs and things like that. Of these 12 studies, three of them were for psilocybin and nine were for S-ketamine. The subjects of these were um, all people with depression and most of them had treatment resistant depression, but three of the studies, it was just depression. Um, and treatment re resistant depression was most commonly defined by having tried two antidepressants unsuccessfully. Um, suicidal ideation was inconsistent. It was an inclusion criteria for a few of the studies, but it was actually an uh, exclusion criteria and a handful as well. So that was a, that was a little bit um, inconsistent. And they ended up having uh, 1,843 um, people, subjects included, combined. Uh, one note is that um, S-ketamine studies all compared this drug to the standard of care antidepressants, whereas the psilocybin studies were a little bit mixed. One of them compared it against um, an antidepressant. Actually, that was the one Barhani just uh, reviewed for us, the acetalopram study. Um, and then the other two compared it against um, a placebo. So sort of bird's eye view, they looked at four different endpoints for these substances. They looked at the rapid effects, the long-term effects, suicidality, and then adverse events. Um, and they uh, got kind of busy with the tables, but I'm just going to kind of summarize a little bit. So for the rapid effects, uh, they first looked at es escitalamine, or I'm sorry, esketamine. Uh, es um, and the way that they determined this was they had patients come in who were already on an antidepressant, 
and they um, had them have one nasal spray of esketamine. Um, and then they assessed them at two to four hour mark, and then they assessed them again at the 24 hour mark. And similarly to the other studies, uh, so, so all these studies used the, uh, the MADRS, the M-A-D-R-S score that Jeffrey talked about. Um, and they found a rapid decrease in depressive symptoms at both the two to four hour mark and the 24 hour mark for esketamine intake. There was a significant difference for the 84 milligram esketamine. Um, and then only one of these studies found it for the uh, 56 milligram dose, found, found a significant drop for that dose. For psilocybin, the design for this one was that one group got a placebo and the other one got the active drug, which we have talked about being not a particularly helpful thing. One way they tried to get around that was by giving people niacin because it would make them feel something kind of uncomfortable. Um, but they sort of admit that this is a limitation. People kind of know if they didn't get uh, psilocybin. Um, so one group would get placebo, one group would get uh, psilocybin, and then they would um, answer a depression scale. In this case, they used the slightly redundantly named Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale for Depression, um, or the HADS-D, uh, and also Beck's Depression Inventory. Um, and of these, only one out of three, oh sorry, so then they would switch them. So the group, the following day, the group that got the placebo would get the active drug, and the group that got the active drug would get the placebo. So out of these, only one of these three studies reported rapid effects with a significant reduction in the baseline scale. Um, so that's rapid effects. Long-term effects for esketamine, the design for this was uh, they were given, uh, patients were given twice weekly esketamine doses, um, and they were on, these patients were on antidepressants, and that was compared against antidepressants alone. Um, there were a lot of different antidepressants mixed into all these different studies. Some were SSRIs, SNRIs, one was mirtazapine. Um, so it wasn't super consistent with, with the mechanism. Um, and then at 25 and 28 days, they, these patients were assessed using the same, the same um, MADRAS scale. Uh, they found a downward trend in all the studies with statistical significance being achieved only in two of these. And this is table three if anyone's following along. And then for psilocybin, uh, this is table five. Um, this was uh, given during two sessions, three to seven weeks apart. Um, and then, as, as I mentioned before, two of the studies compared it to nothing at all, and then the other one compared it to um, uh, escitalopram. In the two placebo studies, there was a significant difference from baseline at five to six weeks and at 26 weeks. Um, in the escitalopram study that we discussed, there wasn't, um, but they sort of, the authors of this paper sort of argued this is maybe a non-inferiority study, as we already discussed. Uh, for suicidality, the, the third sort of endpoint, um, for escitalopram, uh, rather, um, suicide was, suicidal ideation was an exclusion criteria in six of the studies, and inclusion criteria in three of them. And this endpoint was a little bit murkier for me. Uh, in the studies where suicidal ideation was an inclusion criteria, esketamine was reported to demonstrate significant rapid improvement in depression using the MADRS scale at four hours and 24 hours. But this reached significance in only one of these studies. But then they also noted that suicidal ideation and suicidal, suicide attempts showed up in other people who had not had suicidal ideation previously. Um, and these were even reported as, as serious adverse events in some of these studies, and people were removed from the study because of it. Uh, for psilocybin, 
they only looked at suicidality in one of the studies, and um, that was the uh, the study that uh, Burhani just took a look at, and they found that the uh, six week uh, the, the, the depression score at six weeks um, had dropped two points uh, with the placebo and 0.8 from baseline. Um, they didn't mention significance, but we just talked about that. Um, so, and then finally, adverse events for esketamine. They, um, you know, they, the authors said mild to moderate, but then they went on to, to you report some pretty sort of striking um, adverse events. So they said, you know, most people just had some mild psych psychiatric complaints, transient anxiety, disassociation, and then their physical things were mostly sort of headaches, dizziness, nausea, and most resolved the same day. But then all studies revealed some serious adverse events that occurred, including suicide attempts, um, ANS imbalances, lacunar strokes, simple partial seizures, and fractures. I don't know how this <laughs> somebody gets a fracture from taking uh, as ketamine in a, in a uh, supervised environment, but these were these were reported as serious adverse events. For psilocybin, um, they were pretty underwhelmed. There were really no serious adverse events. Everything was transient and tolerable, and all had resolved fully by the end of the sessions, primarily sort of anxiety, headaches, nausea, vomiting. Nobody needed any sort of uh, farm interventions like benzos or anything like that. Um, so limitations, of course, they were using different scales between the, the studies, and systematic reviews always sort of have that that limitation that um, they're sort of using different different uh, different rules. There weren't as many psilocybin studies, and then the group, the, the people in the psilocybin studies, there were there were smaller numbers as compared to the um, esketamine. Um, and then, of course, the placebo for the psilocybin studies uh, was quite. Uh, quite challenging, as um, um, I think Dr. Hendrickson was mentioning. You can't if people are told ahead of time you're gonna you're gonna get a medicine um, that's gonna improve your depression, and then they you know do or do not get that. They're gonna their their subjective depression scale is likely going to change. Um, yeah, so sort of in summary, they felt they the, the authors found that the esketamine uh, resulted in rapid improvement in depression. Um, plus or minus suicidality, which can last up to seven weeks, superior to the standard of care antidepressants. Um, but there were some serious adverse events. Um, psilocybin uh, had rapid and long-term antidepressant effects. Nothing really with suicidality, but both are likely safe when used in a supervised clinical environment. All right, and I think that last line is probably the key thing, is when they use this in a, an appropriate clinical environment supervised by these study personnel or psychiatrists, as I think is being proposed in Australia, perhaps. Um, maybe it's a second, third choice for therapy for treatment-resistant depression. But again, the numbers, even when they dug through everything ever published in PubMed, they really only came up with three studies, which we talked about a couple of them. And this is really just done 2022, the end of 2022. So it's not like there's a couple more working out there that we haven't heard of. Mind you, all these studies that we just talked about, and including the next one, all were published after the vote in Oregon in 2020. So there was a practically zero in the actual medical literature. Not that these five different medical authorities all weighed in. It's so no vote recommendations were actually paid attention to, at least on a population-based scale. But esketamine is being used slowly as another alternative, as another agent that also carries with it some risk of, 
of misuse. I think maybe the good news is neither of these sort of generated sort of a out of study misuse potential, um, which is always a big concern. You know, people go out and just buy this on the street or somehow misuse these drugs or have diversion of these drugs. It's always uh, a possibility. I was going to follow up with the last study, which is the most recent one, um, which basically is a 12-month follow-up of one of the earlier studies. So, Matthew, want to tell us about that one. Yeah. Um, let me share. I'll go ahead and share the PDF I have of the... Okay. I think you guys can see the my screen here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I have my notes on the side. So, yeah, this comes out of Johns Hopkins. Um, so this is a, a study, a prospective study at 12 months looking at the efficacy of um, psilocybin-assisted treatment for major depressive disorder. So this is a, kind of just coming from the abstract here, the, the primary aim is examine the efficacy through 12 months for moderate to severe and, uh, major depressive disorder receiving psilocybin. Um, it's a randomized waiting list controlled study. So this is like, I have to look this up. So it's a it's a study in which there's a quote unquote control group who essentially just don't receive the experimental treatment right away, but they're put on a waiting list. And so sometimes these waiting lists are indefinite. And so the the it's a way of getting around the kind of um, or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like not not giving someone the gold standard of treatment in order to so <laughs> like withholding treatment from them. So it's kind of a way of getting around that. And end up still initiating your study, but then they they received the intervention after eight weeks. So they did eventually get the intervention, just they had to wait a little bit longer. Um, some of the some of the downsides to this is that it's not really, there's not really a sham group or a really a control group because both are getting um, the experimental treatment at some point in the study. So it's not it's not really great for comparison's sake. But there were a total of 27 patients. Um, they were aged 21 to 75, they had moderate to severe unipolar depression based off of this, this study using the GRID-Hamilton depression rating scale, or GRID-HAMD, HAMD, as I'll probably say is in the, for the rest of it, uh, for the sake of brevity. But this is a, a scaling system that was kind of modified, I think, in 2017 or not too long ago. It was like kind of when the newer um, scale was released, and it has this grid um, system that basically allows for better uh, repeat repeatability, better reliability, um, and so a score of greater than or equal to 17 based off of blinded clinician assessments was kind of what they determined as a as moderate to severe unipolar depression. Um, so I yeah I mentioned the the randomized control group. Um, they excluded individuals. I'll scroll down here to where I'm reading. They excluded individuals that had a family history of first or second, um, first or second degree relatives with bipolar one or two disorders. Uh, so this had to be monopolar or unipolar depression without a history of any kind, any bipolar disorders in the family. Uh, additionally, patients were required to refrain from using any psychedelic substances for five half lives prior to the initiation of the trial, as well as a month following the second administration. Um, <clears throat> So participants would receive either 20 milligrams of, per 70 kilogram body weight uh, at the first, uh, at the initial um, treatment. And then two weeks later, they would receive a second 
uh, treatment under supervision uh, of 30 milligrams per 70 kilogram body weight. Uh, this was administered in a comfortable room under supervision uh, by a facilitator, and then afterwards they would receive non-directive psychotherapeutic uh, treatment on session days at one day following and one week following each drug administration session. Um, then they would they would come back and be followed up at one, three, six, and twelve months following the second session. So I don't know how that happened necessarily for the the delayed group. I guess they probably didn't they didn't get the twelve month follow up. They got a twelve month follow up, but it wasn't after the second. 12 months after their second administration. Uh, all participants received an fMRI at baseline and then one week after the second psilocybin session. Um, some of the outcomes that they were measuring, the primary outcome is, is just depression severity. And this was also, again, using the GRID-HAM-D scale um, assessed by blinded clinician raters via telephone, as well as some self-reporting questionnaires that they also included. Um, participants also rated their measures of the psilocybin effects that they experienced. So this is measured on the mystical experience questionnaire, um, which is a 30 question questionnaire called MEQ30. Uh, it's all like single item measures on which they rate the degree um, that each session was personally, meaning, personally meaningful to them, spiritually significant, psychologically insightful, or psychologically challenging. And there's, they're like on a scale of one to eight. Um, and then there was overall well-being attributed to the psilocybin uh, treatment sessions. That was, this was just self-questionnaires. Um, and then they, they measured adverse events and recorded um, safety measures because uh, this was kind of an efficacy trial as well, seeing if there was adverse events that were um, meaningful. Um, Skip some of the statistical analysis um, portion here. So the so kind of the primary results. This is included here. This is kind of their 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 control other uh, study group. Primarily, 67% female and 92% Caucasian. There was one participant identified as black, another as Asian. So pretty limited um, generalizability here as far as the cohort is concerned. Um, mean age of uh, around 40 years of age. Um, mean il mean duration of illness was about 21 and a half years. So they. They'd, ha they'd had issues with depression for a long time. Um, many had attempted treatment with antidepressants in the past, and some had uh, actually had a um, psychedelic drug use in the past as well, average 3.5 previous uses and nine years since last use. So it had been some time before, uh, since they had been non-psychedelic um, substances. So the primary outcome here, um, I just have I have some things outlined here. We can go look at some of the, the graphs. but. The grid hamd scores were significantly lower in the immediate treatment group at one and four weeks post-treatment compared to corresponding time points. Um, they did some they did analysis of variance scores looking at the significance of time effect, and this is what this is one of the biggest drawbacks of this study. So because they had this waitlist delayed group, they did look at the analysis of variance between the two groups, and then they determined that there was no significant effect of condition between the immediate versus the delayed treatment groups. So they essentially just collapsed all the data across both conditions. So you, at the end of the day, you, ju you just get one one graph that shows the the difference in treatment. So it's kind of hard. It, it kind of makes it makes you question why there was even like a waitlist group because everyone got the same treatment. It was a little bit delayed, but then they just put all the numbers together. Um, and we'll we'll look at those graphs here in a little bit. But the uh, the grid hamd scores for these patients. 
um, decreased from a mean initial mean of 22 uh, around 23 um, down to a pretreatment baseline of 8.7 at one week 8.9 at four weeks and then this is kind of persistent throughout it goes up a little bit 9.3 at three months seven at six months and then 7.7 .7 at 12 months so initial starting around 23 dropping down to a mean of about 7.8 on, on this grid hamd scale so pretty significant um, decrease in their uh, depression scales and this is like i said earlier blinded clinicians who are discussing their symptoms over the phone and then scoring them um next thing i have here outlined is um, 17 out of the 24 participants, um, they showed, yeah, they, the clinical response rate that they considered significant was a uh, greater than 50% reduction rate, and 71% of participants showed that at, at week one um, after treatment. So their, their symptoms were significantly reduced. 58% uh, of these patients one week after the initial treatment were considered to be in remission. Um, the final response and remission rates ended up being around 75% response, so greater than 50% reduction, and then 58% of the of the 27 patients were actually considered to be in remission. Uh, and this is their final 12-month uh, follow-up that they got these numbers from. So they looked at, like I said, adverse events previously or throughout the throughout the prospective trial. Um, they said that. Psilocybin did not exacerbate depression in any of these participants, but three did not meet criteria for a treatment response. Um, so these patients started with really high grid HAMD scores and essentially just maintained those those high scores throughout. They didn't receive any um, uh, benefit, but they note later on in the study that there was no significant adverse events noted. There was like one patient who had persistent um, alterations of perception and some headaches and those kinds of things, but they only really discussed one one participant having adverse events, and that they didn't they weren't persistent throughout the entire uh, trial. So they didn't they didn't even record them in the actual study. This is like in a in a second document, a secondary document. I had to open up. Um, so some patients actually started back on their previous antidepressants. This is kind of looks like around the three month the three month period. Um, if I'm reading this correctly, yeah, four weeks. So at four weeks, no, no patients were restarted. At three, at three months, about 12.5% of patients had restarted. At uh, six months, about 20% of patients had restarted. And then at 12 months, there was about a third of the total patients who had restarted their um, antidepressant use. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is what I'm talking about, how they, they just compressed all of the data together um, for the, both of the trial groups. So there isn't a, a comparison. But this is kind of their initial one week post treatment, 50% um, reduction or more in their grid HAMD scores, and then kind of the persistent uh, lowering in some of the patients that are remission. The um, the large intervals here are plus and one plus and minus one standard deviation. Um, these are all the individual participants. So this is kind of these are the, some of the patients who started with really high grid HAMD scores at baseline and just didn't receive any um, clinical benefits. Some of these other patients kind of initially had some benefit and then persistently through 12 months didn't um, didn't have a 50% reduction. And then I kind of skipped a lot of the, the overall well-being score because at the end of the article I read that they didn't um, correlate well with de decrease in depression, which was the primary aim. So I didn't really uh, 
dig into these too much, but they're all the subjective um, MEQ30 um, questionnaires and, and, their, and their subjective questionnaires that, they, that the patients did themselves. They didn't really correlate well with their grid hamd blinded assessments. So it didn't seem like the, those were of much benefit to the, to the overall trial, overall study. Yeah. Um, and this is what the no serious adverse events to suicidal ideation remain low. No instances of self-injurious behavior or uh, reported use of other psilocybin or other psychedelics. And no participant met criteria for uh, the hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, HPPD. Which, which is flashbacks, which we know is, is a low incidence of flashbacks with psilocybin compared to something like LSD. Yeah, and my understanding is that's something that you get years out to. So, I mean, a 12-month trial, you may have some of that, but I would imagine that's also something that's several years down the line. But, yeah, um, I think that those are the primary outcomes. Um, I don't know if there's anything. So, I mean, their conclusion... The conclusion was that it seems to be, you know, psilocybin-assisted treatment for major depressive disorder produced a large uh, and stable antidepressant effect through their 12-month uh, treatment. And according to their study, they had no adverse effects. Um, and they used a they used uh, a weight-based dose, but there you know, there's a discussion that you know there's some studies that show. So, I think Jeffrey's trial, their the max dose was 25. These patients were receiving greater than at least all of most of them were receiving at least 25 milligrams of psilocybin or more um, and had no adverse events and potentially this versus a fixed dose, that would be something to look into in the future. But um, some of the limitations of the study, again, is that they didn't really have a comparison group. They didn't really have a control group. Um, they weren't able to determine drug preparation procedures and how the day procedures may be in the absence of high dosing psilocybin may have a uh, skewed their study because they had a really comfortable room with a facilitator and they did a, a lot of, um, they, they basically controlled for all that, but in other settings that, that may affect their, the results. Um, I don't know if, it, yeah, anyone else who read the study had anything that they found that was important that I didn't pull out of it or, uh, well, I think it was a, a complicated study, but it was a follow-up out to a year. I think maybe the big take home points were patients who had a response and a remission, the rates were high at, at one year. It was like 75% of response and 58% remission. And it was also 33% ended up needing to take another antidepressant to sustain their response. But I think the sort of the good news part of it is whoever seemed to respond at the one to four week period of time were likely the ones who were going to respond long term. And the people who weren't, so you don't have to wait a year to figure out if this is going to work. You know, by four weeks, if it's not working, you just need to do something else. Um, so if at best, I can describe this as a pilot study, extended analysis of a pilot study, because they're really only had 24 people in the study. So it was a small group. It was done reasonably well, but without a control. So it wasn't really completely blinded. It was sort of supported by this institute. As opposed to the other paper, where there was a lot of hands-on, who wrote what and who analyzed stuff, the Hefner Institute had more of a funding only with a hands-off and let the Johns Hopkins researchers do their thing under standard sort of uh, publication ethics. So maybe 
there's a chance that it works in some groups of people, highly screened groups of people, who clearly had, had spent half their lives being depressed. The average age was 40, and, and the average duration of depression was 20 years, which is, to me is quite substantial as far as severe depression, as far as the inclusion group. So to have a sustained response rate of 60%, 58% is pretty good in, in, uh, for a study for looking at a, literally a new drug analysis. Um, I'll, I'll kick it back to everybody on the group. So what do you think, knowing what we know now, if you were sitting in the FDA, would you approve this drug? Or would you say, let's do some more research and get bigger numbers than 50 patients here, 59 patients there, 24 patients here um, to move forward? Dan? I'm always interested in uh, getting uh, new and better data. Uh, you know, in reviewing these studies as part of putting this manuscript together, I, um, I, I find the research very interesting, and I think that there's some very solid people that are, are kind of leaders in the field. I do also think that there is a lot of hype and enthusiasm, uh, and when it comes to um, well, I just, I can't, I get caught up in the distinctions between the clinical research, which is very interesting, and then what's starting to happen here in Oregon, which is definitely not clinical research, uh, but it has all of the appearance of being research. So it has the facilitators, and it has the preparation session, and it has an integration session, but the person on the other end of this uh, uh, is going to be, you know, a person who doesn't necessarily have any kind of clinical training. So um, that's the part that I just can't get past at this point. So uh, the other thing for me, in terms of what's going to start happening here in Oregon, is just keep in context the difference uh, in dose scaling. So we're all toxicologists. We think about doses. The doses that have been used in these clinical trials are anywhere between 10 and maybe 25 or 30 milligrams. People who are going to be accessing psilocybin services here in Oregon are going to be uh, able to request a dose up to 50 milligrams, which um, I think by anybody's standards is basically an incapacitating dose. Um, so it doesn't really answer the question that you have, but uh, I think it's all stuff that we all need to be aware of because you're probably going to be on the other end of you know consults when um, uh, when 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 things really start happening here in Oregon. Yeah, as far as that goes, I did ask to get some data extracted. I don't have Oregon data, but I have national data. So poison centers get about 200 calls per year in the adolescent age group because we have access to the adolescent database. Uh, about psilocybin-related um, symptoms or some reason for calling the poison center. So that's not a lot nationwide. It'd be interesting to we'll try to break out the Oregon-only data and perhaps watch this going forward to see what the numbers are. Um, but I agree. I mean, to me, the biggest disheartening thing about this is whether it works or not remains to be seen. I'm all for doing the research and not making it a Schedule One, never touch this drug ever again, as if it was, um, you know, heroin or something like that. Certainly, I don't believe that people who use this even recreationally deserve to 
go to jail for any reason. But the fact that we just voted, influenced by $5 million worth of advertising, to make this happen rather than think this through as scientists and medical professions um, just seems to be a process that should not be repeated. Um, I think the, the horse is out of the barn or whatever expression you want to use, it's going to happen. We're going to have to see what happens. I don't think the people who open these centers really want to be studied or have their clientele studied. I would be surprised if there's any sort of systematic way that it is studied in, as far as who's involved in these cases and the ther therapies uh, that they're proposing. But there's some legislation that's uh, being heard uh, in the current session uh, that would address the issue of collecting information because the, the measure itself didn't have any provisions for collecting information about either safety or efficacy. I, mean, I don't know how you define that when it's you're you know you're not technically doing treatment in the first place, but um, that's something that you might hear about uh, in the in the near future as as people start to uh, to debate it. But yeah, I mean, I find it very difficult to find any meaningful way to get relevant data based on the way that this is going to be rolling out here. Uh, at least relevant data in the context of safety or efficacy uh, uh, based on the way that this program is constructed here. And again, it just gets to the whole kind of paradox of this is a program that is by definition not treatment here in Oregon, but it has all the appearance of treatment and it has people who are seeking it because they want treatment. And so it's just, it's just really messy. Right. Dan, can I clarify one thing from my understanding from your article and from the reading in the law or the rules, I should say? Um, if you, let's just say you were a physician and you wanted to get this certification to give psilocybin to people, you are expressly forbidden from treating them for any medical disorder. So right. all of the stuff that we're talking about today has nothing to do with Oregon. This is recreational psilocybin use, period. Abs you are forbidden from you know, using your advanced degree to treat anyone at all. It is specifically right. written in the rules that you're not allowed to do that. So like, right. whether you believe it works for depression or not, immaterial in Oregon. <laughs> right, so yeah, you know, there may be doctors, yeah, there might be nurses, doctors, psychotherapists that want to provide these kinds of services and go through the training to be a facilitator. Uh, but yeah, if they do that, the law actually prohibits them. The, the, the psilocybin rules prohibit them from using their, their license privileges in the context of providing these psilocybin sessions. So again, it's just very, I mean, it couldn't be more messy than that. The only other thing I'll say, you know, again, this is not really on topic with regards to treatment and safety and efficacy, but it's more Oregon specific is that, you know, with all the issues that I think are that we're going to be facing here, one of the real bottom of the road, you know, bottom bottom line issues is the amount of money that it's going to take to, for a person to become a facilitator. I've just looked, you know, I've learned over looking at these programs is anywhere between ten to twelve thousand dollars to just to become a facilitator, and then a thousand dollars a year as a license on top of that. And so there's a, a lot of concern that when these places really open up, that the cost of going on one of these trips. Uh, is going to be 
you know, more than a, a business class airline ticket to fly across the country. Uh, and no one's going to pay that. And so the, 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 the other side of that issue is that um, it's, it's, you know, it's probable that people are going to go about acquiring psilocybin the way that they've been doing it for decades, which is on the black market. And so you might see more places like the, the, the place that got closed down in, in Northwest, the Shroom House, uh, popping up all over the place. And so again, it's just something, uh, something to be aware of because I think that the cost of all of these services may be just bottom line prohibitive for the vast majority of people. Right. And, and then, of course, there's the Internet, which will continue to edgily sell things like this um, as well. I, I think maybe the best hope is uh, the Australians, if they really did this right, limited this to uh, a licensed psychiatrist prescribing it. Perhaps there's a chance that some data will be collected and a few years from now we'll, we'll have some outcome studies that make sense of all, all of this. Yeah, Zane, I would say looping back to your original question, not even remotely close right. to an FDA application, like not even remotely close. They're, the studies so far have been so poorly controlled. They, their outcomes are all flawed. You know, they're asking 12-month follow-up, even though we started a third of you on antidepressants. Are you, how's your depression? I mean, that, you know. It's really intriguing. This is early research. This is like the exciting stuff, but there hasn't been a good study yet on on this at all. Right. And you know, it, it, it it's not even re not even remotely close mm -hmm. to FDA. I mean, you yeah, you'd get laughed out of the FDA if you tried to put a package together with this. This is just, I don't know. someone clearly would have done it already. It's going to be outrageously profitable if, if it ends up being approved for depression. And, and I think people are being snowed. All, get better. all the politicians who put forth for this, they were said, they were told all this overwhelming research. Well, there's hundreds of papers that cite the same studies, which are not great studies because we just talked about them all that just keep getting regurgitated and churned over and over again. Is there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's 500 articles written about this, but really there's only less than five articles written about this, and they're not overwhelming. It's about 100 patients overall. Yes, there, for, there, there, really there are more studies. Like said, and there are more authors than patients subjective. to date. Yeah, right. <laughs> and subjective outcomes with in depression, which is... Like, we've been studying depression for decades, and there's good ways to study depression and, and asking someone, hey, remember when we gave you that? I mean, you know, that, that's the problem with studies like this. It's, it's all in the stuff you can't read in the methods section. It's all in that. And so you need to have, you know, a study that controls for all of those things. And, you know, the truth is, if there's a placebo effect associated with mushrooms i don't care uh, if if 20 percent of people are less depressed and it's all placebo, then fine take the mushrooms i don't care even if it's all placebo if it works it works but you got to control do a better job of controlling for this yeah 
I don't I don't care if the effect of it is placebo. It doesn't make a difference to me. As long as it has an effect, it's great. But we haven't proved that it has an effect yet. Well, we will all keep our ears and eyes open, and we will anticipate call volume to go up, and we'll anticipate ER visits as well to go up. And unfortunately, people going to the primary care will see people showing up requesting this from their primary care providers who, as Rob just mentioned, cannot prescribe this. They may direct them to the office down the street that's now being approved to uh, take their money outside of the insurance uh, to provide the service. So anyway, thank you all for presenting. Uh, this is an ongoing issue. We'll follow up periodically from time to time. And uh, we'll uh, see everybody next time we do a big journal club. Thank you. Sounds good. Take care, everyone. Yeah. Thanks, Dan, for adding. Yep. Good to be here. Bye-bye. Yeah.